You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, in your New Testament book of Hebrews. This morning we're going to be in chapters 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to study right through books of the Bible. We'll take a book of the Bible like Hebrews, for example, and we'll study right through it, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, so that we can hear from God the entire message that He has for us from that book or that letter. And so right now on Sunday mornings, we're currently in a series called An Anchor for the Soul, in which we're studying through the letter to the Hebrews. If you read your Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use that YouVersion Bible app. If you go into the menu and go into the location stuff, like the event section, you can find us in there and you can find all the notes that will be on the screen, be able to interact with them, share them. It's a great way to interact with the message as we're studying. And if you need a Bible, I think we've got some more in the back and put your hand up in the air and we'll see if we can get you a Bible if you need one to follow along. Hebrews is one of the greatest books in the Bible because it's all about Jesus. It's one of my absolute favorites to study because it's all about considering who Jesus is and what he has done and what that means for us in every area of our lives. So we're going to begin this morning by reading our text which comes from Hebrews chapter 5 starting in verse 11. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You still need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not again laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and that it is active. And Lord, as we come to your word today, we don't come just for... um, for instruction and knowledge, Lord, we come also to hear you speak to us. And Lord, we pray that uh, as you do speak to us through your word, Lord, that we would be receptive to it. Lord, we don't want to be dull of hearing like we read in our text here today. Lord, may we uh, be those who hear your word. May it sink into our minds and into our hearts, and may it do its transformative work in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would do that by your spirit in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look at demographic studies what you'll find is that people are now living longer than they did in the past. They live longer today than they did in the past. One of the side effects of that, there are many, one of the side effects of that is that people are getting married later in life than they used to. They're also having kids and starting families later in life than they did in generations past. And there's been a lot of talk about the side effects that that is having and is going to have on our society. Because what has happened is that adolescents has been extended as a result of this. So adolescence is defined as the transitionary period in human development during which a young person develops from a child into an adult, right? So that's adolescence. In the past, now, adolescence was thought of as starting around age 12 and going until maybe age 18 or 19 or 20. But now, in our time, there's this phenomena of prolonged adolescence, where now adolescence can stretch from 12 to 25 to 30 to 40 or whenever you move out of your mom's basement, right? And so you have these kids, you have these people who are um, 
kids, but they're adults, right? They're like, uh, they're grown up physically, but in their behavior and in their thinking, they still act like children. It's prolonged adolescence. And so amongst young adults especially, but, but again, not only young adults, it's, it's not uncommon, therefore, to have two different people who are the exact same age. You could take two people, exact same age, but they're at completely different levels of maturity, And that same thing is true when it comes to spirituality. Time on its own, the passing of time, does not automatically cause a person to mature. You can take two people who have been Christians for the same amount of time, but that doesn't mean that they will be at the same level of maturity. It's possible to be a Christian and yet not be maturing as a Christian. And so, but what does that even mean? What does it mean to be mature or immature spiritually or as a Christian? And what do you need to do in order to grow and mature spiritually as a Christian? That's what we're going to be looking at today as we continue our study of the letter to the Hebrews. The title of today's message is Moving into Maturity. Moving into Maturity. And there are two things that we're going to look at in this section, two things that we see. First of all, we see an assessment, an assessment in the first uh, part of the section. And then In the latter part that we looked at in chapter 6, we see the way forward. So first of all, we see an assessment, and then we see the way forward. Let's first talk about the assessment. Just for some context on, on the people and the place that this letter was written to. This letter was written to people who were Christians, but they were struggling. Because here's what had happened. They had heard about Jesus, they had heard the gospel, and they had embraced it enthusiastically. They were excited But then something began to happen as a little bit of time passed, and that is that the general attitude in their society and in their culture began to shift in regard to how people felt and thought about Christianity and about Christians. Initially, the attitude had been generally pretty positive towards Christians, but now that had begun to change, and people in their community and in that society began to treat Christians very negatively, to the point where being a Christian could mean that maybe on the lighter end, it would be hard to get a job, your family members might reject you. But on the other end of that spectrum, you could also experience physical persecution, even in some cases. And because of that, some of those who had become Christians were now starting to have second thoughts about it. They were wondering if it was really worth it to be a Christian, if this was what they were going to have to go through as a result. And so this book was written to these people who were going through these things as kind of an open letter, an open letter to encourage these people to not give up on their faith in the midst of these difficulties, rather to fix their eyes on Jesus and cling to him all the more in the midst of these hard things that they were going through, because only in him is salvation, only in him is there a hope which goes beyond this life and beyond the difficulties and frustrations of this life. And so throughout this letter, the writer is highlighting different aspects of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in order to save us and be our Savior. Most recently, the writer has been talking in the section where we left off last week about how Jesus is our high priest and how the picture of the high priest from the Old Testament was really a foreshadowing, a foretaste of who Jesus would be and what he would do in order to save us. But then the writer, as he's talking about Jesus as a high priest, here he takes kind of a break from that. He stops in his tracks and he says in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, about this we have more to say. But it's hard to explain it to you because you become dull of hearing. In other words, the writer isn't done talking about how Jesus is the high priest. He was talking about this interesting character named Melchizedek. He's not done talking about that. He's going to get back to that in chapter 7. But right now at this point, he stops. He says, hang on a second. Before we go any further, 
I need to say something. I need to talk to you guys. I need to talk to you guys about where you're at, about what's going on with you in your lives. And so from verse 11 to verse 13 of chapter 5, he gives them an assessment. And the first part of this assessment is he says, you have become dull of hearing. You become dull of hearing. What he's saying is, look, we're talking about all this stuff about Jesus, but, but I'm not sure you really get it. Like, I'm not sure it's really sinking in because if it did, if you really got this, it would change your lives. You would live differently. It would affect you. These are powerful, incredible things that we're talking about. And the fact that you're still on the fence, the fact that you're still not sure if you're going to continue with Jesus or not, that shows that you haven't really understood who he is. You haven't really understood the gospel. You might understand it in theory, but it hasn't gotten into your heart. You know, I wonder how many of us in here, there's a way in which we become dull of hearing. I think that's something that can happen over time. Maybe you've gotten so accustomed to hearing about Jesus and thinking about Jesus that it no longer amazes you like it used to. It no longer thrills you like it once did or like it rightly should. See, maybe at one time it did. Maybe, maybe though, on the other hand, you're kind of on the other side of the spectrum. You grew up with it. You grew up hearing it. From the day you were born, you had Christian parents and they prayed for you and they took you to church and that's just the water that you swim in. I mean, it's just what you're used to. You've grown up your whole life hearing about it. And for that reason, these incredible truths about Jesus and who he is and what he did, they kind of seem like old hat to you. You take them for granted. It doesn't thrill you. It doesn't amaze you in the way that it should. Maybe you've started to take these things for granted. They've become too normal to you. It doesn't knock you off your feet. It doesn't blow your mind. Instead, it's kind of become like, you know, the teacher in the Charlie Brown movie when you hear it, and he's just like, wah, 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 wah. It's just become noise. You know, I know for myself, my story is this. I grew up, and I went to Lutheran school growing up, and uh, I had a great experience in Lutheran school, by the way. Kindergarten to eighth grade, I went to Lutheran school, and in seventh and eighth grade of that school, I had to go to confirmation class, and so during confirmation class for two years, we spent time, you know, reading the catechism and memorizing scripture and learning the Bible and learning doctrine, and it was great. I learned a lot, and, uh, but here's the thing. I was confirmed then, but it wasn't until three years or so later that that information that I had learned, that I had memorized It actually came alive in my heart. You see, it moved from my head down to my heart because I had this friend and we were talking in the car one day and she challenged me and she said, you know, the thing about you is this, you know a lot about Christianity, but you haven't really put your faith in Jesus, right? You haven't really believed the gospel. You haven't really embraced Jesus as your savior personally. You haven't really taken hold of these things by faith. And that was the spark, that conversation was the spark that ignited something within me, this great change that God was doing in my life. And I started reading my Bible. And as I did that, I I became just blown away by the fact that God loved me, that God loved me. I was blown away by it. I was overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. I was overwhelmed with a sense of how I, I was sinful and I was inadequate. And yet in spite of that, God loved me so much that he had come and he had suffered and died for me in order to make me his own. And I just remember sitting in my car on on multiple occasions and being so overwhelmed by the fact that God loved me and that I could be forgiven, that I I was moved to tears. And I remember being so encouraged and so excited that God had given me a new life and he had put his spirit inside of me to lead me and guide me and empower me to do his work in the world. And I was just so thrilled about it. But what's interesting about that is this, you know, none of those things were, were new information for me, right? Like I had grown up 
hearing those things and being taught those things. But the point was that it, it, was, it was at that point that I really understood them. When that stuff moved from being in my head in theory to being in my heart and coming alive and it became personal, I took hold of it by faith. There's a difference. Up until that point, see, I had heard those things, but my hearing was dull. Uh, up until that point, I hadn't really got it. It hadn't amazed me. It hadn't thrilled me. And I want to ask you this. Have you understood the gospel in that way? Have you understood the gospel in such a way that it thrills you, that it amazes you, that it knocks you off your feet, and it blows your mind, and it moves you? Let me ask you this, on the other hand. Have you become dull of hearing? Have you become dull of hearing? Maybe there was a time in your life when you used to be more attentive, when the gospel used to speak to your heart more, when you used to get more out of it, but that's not the way it is anymore. You know, I listened to this comedian a while back. It's maybe a funny, it's a very well-known sketch. Maybe some of you have seen it online. But this comedian, right, he's talking about how we live in this age of amazing technology, and yet we take it for granted, right? Like, so we live in this age that there are things that we take for granted that people 100 years ago could not even imagine, right? Like we have our cell phones, and right, like if your iPhone is slow and it's like taking a second to connect to the internet, you get all upset. You're like, what a piece of junk. I'm just, I should just throw this thing in the way or I should spend another $800 to buy a new one. And this comedian's like, can you just give it a second, right? It's going to space. Like, can you give it a second to come back from space maybe, right? Like it's, it's an amazing thing and yet we totally take it for granted. We expect it to just work all the time. Another one is like airplanes, right? Like to go from New York to Los Angeles used to take like three years and like people would die on the way and new people would be born and you would be a completely different group of people by the time you arrived in Los Angeles than when you left New York. And now, like we, we ride on an airplane and you know, you talk to these people who ride on an airplane, and you sound, it sounds like this is the worst day of their life. They're like, well, I got there, my flight was delayed by 30 minutes, and then I got on, and we had to sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. And he's like, oh, yeah? Well, then did you fly through the air like a bird? Like, come on. I mean, he says, every time you fly, you should just be amazed, like, the entire time. Like, you should just be holding on to your seat going, oh, my gosh, like, I'm flying in a metal tube 30,000 feet above the earth, just rocketing through the sky towards my destination. And the point is that there are these amazing things, and we just totally take them for granted. Like, they no longer amaze us. We're just totally, like, it's just old hat to us. Like, yeah, whatever, I just, I don't want to have to sit on this tarmac for 30 minutes. And the gospel can be one of those things. It's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely amazing. It should absolutely blow your mind, and yet you can get so accustomed to it that it no longer does that. You can become dull of hearing, and if you're not careful, that's what will happen. You'll become dull of hearing. You'll cease to be moved by it and thrilled by it and amazed by it. The second part of this assessment is, he says, you know, by now you ought to be mature, but you're not. You're still immature. You have this prolonged adolescence in, on a spiritual level. You know, these people, they had been Christians for some time. We don't know exactly how long, but they've been Christians for some time now, and yet they had not progressed. They had not matured. In other words, there's an expectation that if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you should be making continual progress. There should be growth. There should be maturing and progressing in your understanding, in your faith, in, in your actions, you know, one of the word pictures that the Bible uses in the Old Testament is used three times in almost succession to each other. And one of the word pictures that the Bible uses in the Old Testament 
to express what it means to have a relationship with God, it says that certain people walked with God, right? So we see that Noah, for example, it says that Noah was a righteous man and Noah walked with God. It says that Enoch walked with God and God took him up. It says that Abraham walked with God. You know, that phrase, walked with God, that's a very vivid picture it's painting. I mean, think about the kinds of people who you go on a walk with versus the kind of people you don't go on a walk with, right? Like, I don't go on walks with just anybody. I go on walks with my wife. I go on walks with my kids. Maybe I'll go for a walk in the mountains with some friends. And what do you do on those walks? Well, we, we talk. We share an experience together. It's about spending time together. It's about enjoying each other's company. It's about experiencing something together. So walking with someone implies intimacy, it implies a relationship, it implies togetherness, but it also implies that you're going somewhere, right? Like when you're walking with someone, you're moving in a particular direction. They're also moving in that direction. You're leaving where you were when you started out and you're going to somewhere else. You're moving forward. There's progress. All of that's implied in this phrase, walking with God, which is a picture that the Bible uses of what it means to be in a relationship with God. And so what that means for me and you is that if you are a disciple, if you are walking with God, then the expectation is that you should be further along today than you were a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. Progression and faith and depth and maturity. But the fact is that that's not always the case. It's not the case for all of us. And as we see, it wasn't the case for the people that this letter was written to. Uh, being a Christian for a long time, they hadn't grown much. There was not much maturity going on. He says, you're still like babies in the faith. And hey, who doesn't love babies, right? Like I love babies. Babies are adorable. But the thing is that after a while, if someone's still acting like a baby when they're 10, 15, 20, 30 years old, well, that's an indication that something's fundamentally wrong. There, there's a problem. It's not cute anymore. So we need to define what is Christian maturity? What does it mean to be a mature Christian? How do you know if you've gotten there and what do you need to do in order to get there? The writer tells us two things about what maturity is. First of all, he says, maturity means being able to instruct yourself and being able to teach others. So first of all, being able to instruct yourself and being able to feed others and or teach others. He says in verse 12, by this time you ought to be teaching others, but you still need someone to teach you the basics. You know, our youngest child is one year and nine months old. So she's coming up on two years old. She's not there yet. But until recently, you know, we had to spoon feed her, right? Uh, she couldn't feed herself. But as she's gotten older, one of the marks of maturity that we see in her is that now she's able to feed herself. My other kids, not only are they able to feed themselves, but they're even able to feed the baby. And my oldest son, he knows how to go to the fridge and go to the cabinet and get out the food and even prepare the food in order to serve it to the others. So that's one of the marks of maturity that the writer gives us here in the text is that you're able to take care of yourself and you're able to take care of others. And you may not, uh, that doesn't mean that you know all the answers, but it means that you're able to know where to get the answers and you're able to teach others the things that you have come to know. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told about God's vision for the church and what it is. And here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, He, that is Jesus, He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints 
for the work of the ministry. That's it right there. The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. The church's job is not to entertain Christians. The church's job is to equip Christians. And to do what? To equip them to do the work of the ministry. So the ministry of the church is to teach and to train and encourage the people so that they, that is you, can do the work of ministry, do God's work in the world. In other words, God wants you to be a minister of the gospel. And that doesn't mean that you're going to have a name tag and a business card that you can say, hey, I have a certificate, I'm a certified minister of the gospel. What it means is that some of the most significant gospel ministry that ever takes place happens around kitchen tables. It happens around coffee shops, at the water cooler, at work. It happens at parks while your kids are playing on the playground. It happens at family gatherings. It happens as you're doing activities with friends. Imagine an army being trained up and then sent out into the world, equipped to minister and share the love of God and the hope of the gospel in every sphere and every facet of life. That's the picture that's being given to us here. And it goes on. It says this, Equipped for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature, there's that word again, mature manhood. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint for which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, here's what it's telling us. Mature people are those who know how to help others know God and they are able to build them up with the truth of the gospel. They're able to help others know God and they're able to build them up with the truth of the gospel. By the way, just kind of a parenthetical statement here. This is the reason why we're developing this school of ministry and discipleship because we want Whitefields to be not a place of entertainment. We want it to be a place of equipping where you can get the tools that you need, the knowledge that you need in order to grow as mature disciples and be sent out into the world to minister the gospel. So there's another mark of maturity that he gives here. He says this, maturity also means being able to use discernment. Maturity means being able to use discernment. He says in verse 14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have by the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So maturity means being able to use discernment and not needing someone to hold your hand and tell you what you can and can't do. Now think about babies again, right? This analogy of babies. If you have a baby in the house, you've got to watch out because as soon as they get mobile, they're going to put everything they possibly can into their mouth. And so you've got to lock up the cabinets. You've got to put, you know, baby-proof the house because they're a danger to themselves, right? So they don't pull things down on themselves. They don't drink things or eat things that they shouldn't. And so you've got to watch out for that. But as children get older, what do we do? We, we don't keep the baby locks on the doors, right? Instead, what we do is, instead of hiding things from them and just blocking them from getting things, progressively what we do is we allow them to have access to those things, but we teach them why they should make the decisions that we want them to make, why they shouldn't do certain things. Like, you know, hey, you shouldn't touch the stove because it will burn you and that will hurt and that will be bad for you. You shouldn't play with cleaning solutions because they can hurt you. You shouldn't run into the street because you could get hit by a car and that would ruin your day, right? Like the, the reason that we put those boundaries around them in the first place was why? Because we love them. But see, as they get older, 
The loving thing to do is to help them to mature, to help them to make those decisions, to use discernment on their own so that you don't have to always be there because one day you're not going to always be there. One day you're not going to be there and they're going to need to make wise decisions for themselves. And so as they grow, that's what maturity is about. It's about teaching them how to think and to make decisions for themselves and use discernment. So maturity is when you no longer need to stand next to somebody and, and, or, or you don't need somebody to stand next to you and tell you what you can do and what you can't do, but you're able to discern for yourself between right and wrong, between the will of God and what's not the will of God, between what's wise and what's foolish, between what's helpful and what's hurtful. You know, it's a lot easier really to give someone rules than it is to train them and help them mature in their thinking. It's a whole lot easier to tell them, hey, you just don't ask why, just don't do it, right? But when you're no longer there anymore to enforce those rules, what happens then? When, you're, when they're out on their own, those rules aren't going to be so holding very hard anymore. And they're going to need to be able to think on their own and use discernment. A mature person, for example, a mature person isn't always asking the question, well, is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is this a sin? See, you know, that's the kind of question that a, a not mature person asks. You know, a mature person asks, on the other hand, does this please the Lord? Does this glorify God? Does this help me in my pursuit of God or not? Right? So a mature person doesn't ask questions like, okay, so can I see R-rated movies? How about PG-13 rated movies? Can I listen to rap music? Is that against the rules? Right? You know, a mature person instead asks the question, whatever I'm doing, does it please God? Does it bring glory to God? Does it help me out in my pursuit of God? Maturity is when you say, all things may be lawful for me, but I understand that not all things are helpful. And I'm on a mission. I have a pursuit. And if this doesn't help me in that pursuit, then why would I do it? I'm going to set it aside. You know, later on in, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author encourages people, he says, and set aside the sin which so easily entangles and run the race. I mean, can you imagine trying to run a race and having a bunch of stuff on your back? It's not helpful. And that's the kind of thinking that he wants us to have. You know, here in Colorado, the question you always get is, well, you know, since marijuana is legal and like the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not smoke marijuana, so does that mean that it's cool now? Like I can do that and it's not a sin and God's not going to bust me for it? Again, wrong question, right? Like that's, that's not a mature question. That's the kind of question that a kid asks, not a mature person. Maturity is being able to use discernment for yourself without needing someone to stand next to you and hold your hand and tell you what you can do and what you can't do. And the writer of the Hebrews is telling these guys, you guys are babies still spiritually. Even though by now you should be mature, you're stuck in this perpetual adolescence and it's time to grow up. He says in the next few verses exactly what we're gonna uh, be seeing, what exactly was the way that they were showing their immaturity. And we see that in the way forward in, as we get into the first few verses of chapter six. I was planning, you might notice this in your notes, but I was planning on going through this whole section, but we're gonna save a little bit for next week because there's so much in this that I think that we need to hear and learn from. So the first verse of chapter six, it says this, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 
I love this. The writer's telling them, he's telling these immature Christians, he's saying, look, you guys are not where you ought to be by this point in your, your Christian walk, in your Christian life. You're immature still. But look, I'm not going to treat you like a bunch of babies. I'm going to take your hand, and I'm going to pull you along, and we're going to move forward. I'm going to show you the way forward so you can move from where you are now to where you ought to be in maturity. And I think that's a great attitude to have with someone who's lagging behind or who isn't quite there where they should be, who isn't moving into maturity. It's not to shame them. It's not to make them feel bad. It's not to deride them. It's to hold their hand and say, come on, let's go. Let's move forward. Let's, uh, let's move forward into maturity. So here's what he says. Let us therefore leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and let us go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of an instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There are six things that he lists in here and he calls these things the elementary things elementary things, which he doesn't want them to get stuck in these elementary things. He wants them to move past these things and into maturity. So here's the question. What makes these things elementary, and what is that maturity that's not in, in this list? There are six things. I'm going to show you the list, and I'm going to show you what I mean by it. There are six things. Repentance from, from dead work, works, faith towards God, instruction about washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are what he calls the elementary principles. So great, right? Like we should take these principles and we could start a new believers class, six weeks long. These are the basics of what it means to be a Christian and we'll take one week for each of these six things. Good idea? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Before you sign up for that class, let me ask you this. Do you notice anything that's missing from this list? If these were to be the elementary doctrines of Christianity, if this was to be the basics that you need to know about what it means to be a Christian, if these are the core teachings, do you notice anything that's missing? Well, let's begin with this. How about anything at all to do with Jesus, right? Like, how about we start there? Like, there's nothing in here that's explicitly about Jesus. Now, you can, you can go from these things and get to Jesus, but there's nothing in here that's a explicitly about Jesus. Furthermore, there's nothing in here about the cross, is there? That's pretty fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. There's nothing in here about forgiveness and redemption. There's nothing in here about the Great Commission when Jesus sent out his followers into the world to carry out his mission and, do, and spread his mes message. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is saying with this phrase, elementary principles, I don't believe that he's saying that these things are the six core doctrines of Christianity. And I'm going to show you what I do believe it means. Take a look at that list again and ask yourself this question. What is there on this list that is not also found in Judaism? What is there in this list that's not also found in Judaism? Because I want you to remember, this letter was not written to Christians from a pagan background. This letter was written to Christians from a Jewish background. These were Christians who lived in Jewish society. Their families, the people they grew up with, the people they worked for, they were all Jewish. And so here's the setting. Remember the setting of the letter that I told you at the beginning. Here's what was happening in the lives of these people this letter was written to. They were suffering persecution. Why? Because in Jewish society, they had become Christians. It had been looked upon favorably at first, but it no longer was. And all of these things on this list, they represent things which Judaism and Christianity share in common. Let, let's just go through it. Both Judaism and Christianity both believe in repentance from dead works. Of course they do. Secondly, they both believe in faith towards God. Of course, Judaism and Christianity, there's an overlap there. They both believe that. They both believe in instructions about washing, if you call it this way. Like as Christians, we practice baptism. They practice some ritual 
cleansings, they're different, but if you phrase it this way, well, it's pretty much the same thing, right? Just instructions about washing. Laying on of hands, both of them practice that. The, the resurrection of the dead, conservative Jewish people believe in the resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment, of course, Jewish people believe in eternal judgment. And so all of these things are taught and practiced in Christianity, but none of them are distinctively Christian in their teaching or practice. In other words, there's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of Jesus. What he's talking about here when he says elementary principles, these are all things which Christianity and Judaism share in common. Now, I hope you're following where I'm going with this because I think this is actually really important and applicable to us today as well. See, here's what was happening. These discouraged Christians, they were facing persecution. They are facing hardship in their community because of their faith in Jesus. And so what they were doing was there was this temptation to retreat into an inoffensive form of Christianity, kind of an inoffensive middle ground. Like, well, we'll just take out the parts that you're offended by, and then, well, we can all agree on these things. So they're not straight out rejecting Christianity, but they're kind of watering it down into the point where no one takes any offense to it, and no one can persecute them for it. And so if someone asks them, hey, so uh, you're a Christian, so what do you Christians believe? What are you, what are you guys about? And you say, well, you know, I mean, pretty much the same stuff that you guys are, right? Like, uh, I mean, we're into repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And, and the guy would say, oh, yeah, 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 we're into that too. Oh, yeah, and we do some ceremonial washing type thing, you know, and, and where we do laying on of hands and we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment, and the person would say, well, 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 I believe in all those things too, you know, and the Christian would say, well, there you go, right there. I mean, we're pretty much the same, you know, we're just a different group, we call ourselves something different, but you know, we basically believe all the same stuff. Do you see what was happening? They were trying to make Christianity palatable, palatable to the Jewish community that they lived in by removing the parts of Christianity that those people would have found offensive, that they would have taken issue with. What they were left with looked a lot like Christianity in its form, but it was a Christless Christianity. They were still, they had the form of Christianity, but they had removed its very heart. They had removed the cross. They had removed the person of Jesus. Paul the Apostle, he later talks about this in 1 Corinthians, about how Jewish people felt about the cross. He says, for the Jewish people, the message of the cross is a stumbling block. It is the one thing that they cannot get over. They cannot accept it. It's super hard for them to get over it. And so what these Hebrew Christians were doing in their Jewish society, they were trying to remove the stumbling block of the cross in order to make Christianity more palatable to people in their society. Well, that's an interesting historical analysis, right? But I want you to see this is more than just a historical analysis. This applies to us here and now today as well because very much like them, we also live in a society where there is a huge pressure that we should not believe anything or say anything that offends anybody. And so there can be this temptation for us as Christians to try to make Christianity more palatable by downplaying anything that it, it teaches that other people might take issue with or they might be offended by. And they, they would say, well, hey, so what do you believe? What are you Christians about? And we'll say, oh, hey, you know, as Christians, we're all about taking care of the poor. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that is true. But here's the thing, no one will ever take offense at that. If anything, they'll pat you on the back for it. And you say, well, you know, Christianity, well, we're all about loving our community and doing good and helping the down and out and loving people and forgiving people who hurt us. Are those things true? Yes, th that's all part of Christianity. But here, here's the thing, those are the parts that nobody will ever take offense at. No one will ever have a problem with you if you say that. 
See, those are the things that, that, those are things that Christianity teaches. No one, will, though, will ever crucify you for believing those things or doing those things or saying those things. In fact, those things are not the reason why Jesus was crucified either. The reason that they crucified Jesus was because he started saying some other stuff too, right? Like he started talking about sin and judgment day and about he, how he was God come to earth in order to be the savior of humankind. You see, the same thing that these guys were doing back then, you and me can do the same thing today. And some people do do this today. They downplay the parts of Christianity that people might take offense at and they try to make it so palatable so that nobody will ever have a problem with it. And sometimes you'll hear people say this phrase, right? Like, oh, you know, I mean, all religions basically teach the same things. Well, you know what? If you remove the cross, well, then, yeah, I guess you could go that far and maybe make the case that Christianity teaches a whole lot of same things that other religions also teach if you remove the cross. But if you remove the cross... No one will be offended, but everyone will be happy, but you will have removed the very heart. The problem is, if you remove the heart of Christianity, if you remove the cross, if you remove Jesus, what are you left with? You're not, you're not left with a Christianity that can save you. You're not left with a gospel. See, the gospel is no, not good news apart from the cross. The message of the gospel is that the reason Jesus came is because you and me and every person on this earth, we have sinned. We have fallen short. And because of that, we have a debt before God. We have a debt, and we have no way of paying this, and our soul will be required of us. But God, because he loves you, he loves you more than you can even imagine, he came to save you. And he suffered, and he took the judgment that you deserved so that you could be forgiven and redeemed and have the hope of eternal life. I hope that thrills you. I hope it amazes you. It absolutely should. You see, the reason these people were not mature is because they thought that Christianity could be reduced to just the things that you need to do for God. I'll say that again. The reason these people were mature is because they thought that Christianity could be reduced to the things that you do for God. But the good news of the gospel, the message of the cross, the heart of Christianity is that it's not what you need to do for God. It's all about what God has done for you in Christ. That's the deeper stuff. He talks about the meat. That's the meat. That's as meaty as it gets. That's the substance. It does, there's nothing more deeper or substantial or meatier than that. To move into maturity, to live a distinctly Christian life, is to live a life of looking to Jesus and looking to the cross, fixing your eyes on the cross. It's not just about repenting of your sins. It's about going one step further and trusting in what Jesus did for you by taking your place in judgment on the cross so you could be forgiven and redeemed and have everlasting life. It's about responding to what Jesus did for you to make you his own. And it's about responding to that by making him your Lord and your master. Let me ask you, have you done that? Have you embraced the gospel? Have you responded to the gospel by giving your life to Jesus and making him Lord and master over you? Where are you when it comes to these definitions of maturity that we've looked at this morning? Let's finish by looking at verse three one last time. He says, and this we will do if God permits. It seems kind of like a filler verse, but I want to tell you it's super important and I'll tell you why. The point here is this. The power to do these things, the power to actually change and, and to move into maturity it does not lie within any of us. It does not lie within you or me. The power to change in the areas where we need to change, it comes from God. 
It comes from God working in us. And I believe that if we ask him to work in us, he gladly will. So let's go ahead and pray that prayer right now. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. We thank you for the message of the cross because in the cross, Lord, we see your love displayed for us. Lord, that you went to the the greatest degree in order to save us. And so, Lord, we ask that as we read this last verse, verse 3, we recognize that the power to do these things, the power to change in the areas where we need to change, we don't have that in and of ourselves. So we need you to work that change in us. So we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask that you would help us to grow into maturity and move into those areas. Lord, I pray for any of us who would say, you know, I have probably become dull of hearing. The gospel hasn't thrilled me. It hasn't amazed me in the way that it should. Lord, I pray that you would give us new ears to hear. Lord, would you let our hearts become alive with the truth of the gospel. May we take hold of it by faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.